Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. If you're joining us at home, it's so great to have you at home this morning. We're so grateful for your prioritizing worshiping with the faith family, even during the times of a pandemic. Well, this morning, I want to invite you all to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today, and we are actually beginning a six-week journey together through the book of Ephesians. And so as we kind of open up, I want to kind of give you some homework or a way of kind of going about these next six weeks that we'll be going together. So the way I'm going to be doing it is taking one chapter each week. Now, obviously, in one sermon, unless you're planning to be here for a while, um, I'm not going to be able to cover every word of each of the chapters. So what we're going to do, and this is part of my philosophy for preaching, is that as we go through books of the Bible, there's going to be things that we focus on as we pass through the different books. And then next time we're in Ephesians, which maybe several years from now, we'll pass back through and maybe look at some additional things. And that's kind of the richness of God's Word. You know, it's almost a little bit arrogant on our part to think that just in one pass, even if we take our time, that we get everything there is and then we're good on that book. Um, Instead, I think most mature believers would acknowledge That as you continue to progress in the faith and as you continue to read God's word and to go through passages over and over again, you see things you never saw before. Um, Things that maybe you've read a thousand times just all of a sudden leap off the page this pass. And so I want you to know that that's going to how it's going to be as we preach through, as I preach through God's word and as we study God's word together during this time, we're going to look at some specific things as we go, but oftentimes we'll be going more quickly. Now with that said, I want to encourage you to do something. Um, As as I mentioned last week, I'm going to say for this week also, as you're looking to next Sunday, I want to encourage you, be reading Ephesians chapter 2. The better that you come prepared to hear God's word, the more you get out of this time of preaching. And so I want to prepare you on on a regular basis for this time in God's Word. And so be reading Ephesians chapter 2. A goal for some might be to read Ephesians 2 every day. For another person, it may be to read it this week at some point or maybe just one time. But I would encourage you to consider reading Ephesians chapter 2, especially verses 1 through 10, which, is, which will be where I'm focusing next week. Now, there's a big message with the book of Ephesians, and there's a reason that I've really sensed that God was leading us to be in this book at this time. And it's because the big message message of Ephesians is unity, unity within the body of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I feel like these are divided times where you mention an issue and there is division, Um, whether it's about the coronavirus, whether it's about race in our nation, whether it's about politics. I mean, you mentioned just about any topic um, right now and it's divided. I even realized that we're a divided congregation, you know, Matt, on king cake. You know, so that was one of those things where, you know, you even mentioned king cake and it could become a divided issue. I'm just joking about that. Matt sent me an email after that, for that, after that sermon and said, you should avoid such um, political speech, you know, from the pulpit about favorite king cake. So anyway, so I say that jokingly, but just to say these are divided times where even simple things that maybe we could used to talk about more cordially with one another have become a little bit more heated. So is there any hope for the church? Uh, Is it going to be the same here, that whatever's dividing us when we leave this place is also going to be what divides us in this place? Well, the message of the Scripture says no. The, the, The Bible, God's holy word, says no, that we are a united people. There's one body, one body, just as there's one Lord, one Spirit, one Father and God over all. And so we're going to look at some of these aspects of what unite us. But here's the thing. If we are going to have a true biblical unity, then we have to drive some pegs to hang our unity on. 
You see, unity is one of those things that then when you look at it, you see it. You know when a church is united. You know when a couple, a marriage, is united. You can see unity many times. But if there's nothing really robust to hang that unity on, then like a, 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 a flimsy little tack nail that's holding up a large portrait, it just falls off the wall when weight starts to be pulled down on that frame. And so we have to have a robust unity as a church to hang the unity of our, of our congregation upon so that then when the weight of the things in this world, the things that are going on all around us right now in our culture start to pull down on it, that it holds because the pegs are God's holy word. That what we're hanging our unity on is not flimsy, it's not cheap, it's, it's got substance It's driven in deep and can hold a true unity in divided times. And so I want to invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians. And I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. And I'm going to read all of chapter 1 while we will give our attention to verses 3 through 14 today. So hear the word of the Lord today beginning in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. To the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ, might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. 
He has exercised exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glimpse of your glory and how we see Christ both crucified and exalted in one glance. Thank you that we see the truth of the unity of the body of Christ and how Christ alone is the head over this body. Thank you, Lord, that we see that the prayer of Paul is your heart, that we would be united under the wisdom and knowledge of your word bound together by one spirit. Father, thank you that it is your desire to give us truth today about who you are as our Father and to see today that we have a Father like no other. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. The the title of today's sermon is simply, A Father Like No Other. You see, I'm convinced that if we're to have a unity like no other, that when you look at any other organization, you look at any other collection of people around an ideology, a cause, anything, that when you would look at the church of Jesus Christ, you would truly witness a unity like no other. But the substance of that unity is seen, first of all, here in this reality that we have a Father like no other. We have a father like no other. Notice that I said we have a father like no other. One father. One father who is over us as his children. So what I want us to look at today is to see and understand our father. To understand what this passage says about the nature of our father and how it is that he is a father like no other. And what we have to see is that we have a father like no other, but only in Christ. We have a father like no other, but only in Christ. And so the rest of the passage unfolds, beginning in verse 3, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. And then hear it, in Christ. In Christ. That is central to our understanding and our relationship to the Father. If you're not in Christ, then God is not your Father. But if you be in Christ, then you have collectively and individually God as your Father. So as we begin then to go through the rest of this passage, what we see is we have a Father like no other because in Christ, in Christ, He chose us, number one, he chose us and predestined us. Number one, in Christ, the Father chose us and predestined us. Now, I want to unpack these words and understand their significance because we're in a day where some of these words cause division even within the body. So what do they mean in the context of this passage? How are we to understand these words and these ideas? Well, let's begin kind of going through it and just answering some basic questions about this. 
Obviously, the passage uses these words, and so we're just reading the words from the text. But a a question that I believe that it begins to answer immediately in verse 4 is, when did he choose us? When did the Father choose us and predestine us? And what does all this talk about choosing and predestining? When? When did that happen? Well, look at verse 4. It says this, before the foundation of the world. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, before the foundation of the world means this, before Genesis 1, before Adam and Eve, before the fall of man, before Abraham and the Jewish people, before Moses and the law, before kings, before prophets, because this sovereign and gracious act took place before the foundation of the world, The text, therefore, implicitly teaches the pre-existence of Christ. John uses the same expression in John 17, 24, to speak of the love of the Father for the Son prior to the creation of the universe. Peter uses the same language, the same words to describe God's foreknowledge of how he would save the world through his Son in 1 Peter 1, verse 20. The fact that God did his choosing in the pre-temporal period strongly underlines his initiative and his grace in salvation. Chad, are you suggesting that God is in charge of salvation? Yes. Chad, are you suggesting that God gives salvation as a gift? Yes. Are you suggesting that our salvation... That our salvation is something for which God the Father through Jesus Christ gets the credit? Yes. What keeps us, though, from embracing this message and it resulting? Because notice verse 3. The whole point of this passage is to praise the Lord, to praise the Father. And so everything that Paul is going to say, he is saying so that the church just more and more is in awe of God the Father. They, they are set in wonder of his love. So if, if our hearts result in anything other than that, then we're missing the heart of what Paul is getting across to us about the love of the Father. Because he says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what keeps us today from embracing this message of grace? Well, first of all, there's pride. We talked about it last week. That pride is what keeps us from experiencing the glory of God in both the humiliation, the cross of Jesus Christ, and his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus had a child stand before the disciples one day and said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself Like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What I've observed is that it's often adults who struggle to receive gifts, not children. What I've observed is that it's often adults who struggle to admit wrongdoing and to ask for forgiveness, not children. What I've observed is it's often adults who struggle to trust and believe, not children. It was pride, the pride of the Pharisees that kept them from receiving Jesus. It was the pride of the disciples that wanted to keep Jesus from talking about a cross and death and resurrection. It it was pride 
then it is pride today that still causes us to resist his grace and his means of grace, the cross of Jesus Christ. Second, what keeps us from receiving this grace and from embracing it and it overflowing with worship can be previous hurts. For some of us, the mention of God the Father immediately causes us to resist God, to avoid God, to be afraid of God, to not want God, to not trust God. And these emotions and more stem from our own earthly experiences with our earthly fathers. My strongest encouragement outside of highlighting the tremendous value of licensed Christian counselors is to acknowledge those hurts and deep wounds to God your Father. Saying to God your Father, I struggle to trust you because I'm afraid that you'll abandon me like my dad did, places you in a place to hear him speak to your wounded heart and to show you his faithful love for you that will never end. We must, however, be careful at this point to not allow ourselves to misread the Bible. Because Paul does not say God is like a father. He says blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is the true father. Rather than thinking of your earthly father first, we are invited in Christ to have God as our father and then to pattern fatherhood, much like we encourage the the parents here today to do, to then pattern our earthly fatherhood after the Almighty Father's love for the Son. As a dad, I'm to be like the Heavenly Father in my love for my children. But my greatest hope is that they will each know the Father. My role is important in their lives, but it's not ultimate. Therefore, bringing Therefore, bring to the perfect, ultimate God and Father your hurts and your earthly fathers. And he will come and heal you, for nothing is impossible with God. So we see when this happened. But then we look and we say, why did the Father choose and predestine us? Well, the text answers the question in this way. Verse 4, to be holy and blameless in love before him. Holiness has never been an end in itself. Throughout the Old Testament, holiness was a means to seeing and knowing God. In Hebrews 12, 14, God's word says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, for without it no one will see the Lord. God desires others to see himself in you and I like living billboards proclaiming the message of his grace in word and deed. Not only that, living lives of holiness is the most liberating experience there is. Most people today are like those in Psalm 2, who are saying that God and his ways are like chains and bonds that we need to burst out of into real freedom. But that's one of the great lies of sin, It promises freedom and joy, but all it gives is bondage and misery. A life of holiness is a free life. A life of holiness is a joy-filled life. A life of holiness is the life that you've always wanted, but it's only available in Christ. How did the Father choose and predestine us? Well, the text continues on. 
It says, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. Now, right here at the end of verse 4 and at the beginning of verse 5 is this little phrase, in love. And textually, it could go either at the end of verse 4 or at the beginning of verse 5. The reality is either way would be true, that God does what he does in love. God desires us to be holy and blameless in love before him. True. And in love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. Now for the moment, let's consider the phrase in love as being at the beginning of verse 5. So that it would read, in love, as it's translated in the English Standard Version, the ESV, the New International Version, NIV. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. In love, he predestined us. This is so biblically important to our understanding of this word because it has come to represent tension in many churches. If you hear the word predestined and hear it as a message of hate or evil about God, then I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. In love is synonymous with in Christ. God not only chose us to be in Christ, but at the same time he decided to bring us into relationship with himself that could best be described with the metaphor of adoption. Here we receive an enduring picture of God as one who has chosen people to be in relationship with himself, contemplating this out of a heart of love for us. This runs counter to any picture of God where he appears to be cold, calculating, or austere in his ways. Speaking about adoption, under Roman law, an adopted child acquired all the legal rights of a natural-born child and was released from the control of his natural father. The child also received the adopting parent's family name and a share in the status of the new family. The main message about adoption is this, belonging. A belonging where God the Father occupies center stage in his family. But why? Why has God done all of this? Why would, especially as we read Ephesians chapter 2, and we realize that we were dead in our sins, that, that we were slaves to sin, that, that we were vile, that we were an enemy to God. Why? Why would God, while we were yet in sin and rejecting him and hating him with our lives and our words, why would he choose us? Why, why would he, he predestine this even before the foundation of the world, before any of us took our first breath? Why would he do all of this? The text answers the question this way. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. You see, the basis of why God has done this is the good pleasure of his will. The final purpose of election is relational. God is bringing together a people whom he can delight in and enjoy. God took great delight in thinking of his future people and being kindly disposed toward them. To the praise of his glorious grace, God's ultimate purpose in choosing and predestining a people for himself is that it would lead to his own glory. Paul leads his readers to the conclusion that the only proper way to respond to the incredible favor and kindness and grace 
And the love that God has shown is by his people rendering to him praise and glory to his great name. Now, for many reasons, passages like this can cause Christians to pause and to weigh words and to consider and say words like chosen or predestined. And that's good. We should be thinking Christians. But we must not consider these words as if Paul were writing from some ivory tower or that he was just going off on Twitter. Meaning he was not trying to wax eloquently about some theological dispute and get a paper published. Nor was he just trying to get a following to see if he could get somebody to retweet him by, by, by writing off a few controversial sentences. No, Paul is leading the church in worship to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding them that like an adoptive dad who gets down on his knees and pulls his kids in and has them all in close with him right there and then looks at them and says, boys and girls, I want you to know how much I love you. I want you to know that I loved you before I knew you. I I, I love you not because of anything that you've done or anything that you will ever do. I simply love you to love you. In that moment, a child should hear his, could hear his father saying that he's intentionally not choosing to love other children. But that's not what the father is saying when he pulls his children in and tells them how much he loves them. The father is saying, I love you. The Father is saying, I choose to love you. The Father is is saying, I choose each and every one of you. A message meant to secure, nurture, and strengthen the heart of his children. And that's what the message of this text is all about. And if we choose to hear these verses in any other way than a message from our Father, to hear these as words from our Father, communicating his incredible love to us in Christ, a message that's meant to secure us, and nurture us and strengthen our relationship with him as our father through Christ Jesus our Lord, then we've missed the passage. We've missed the message. This passage is supposed to result in worship of the father. So if we end up doing anything else, fuming, debating, thinking prideful thoughts, then we need to keep rereading this passage until it results in praise. Second, in this passage, moving into verse 7, we see that the Father, a Father like no other, in Christ, He forgave our sins and revealed His plan to us. I want you to, to read these verses with me one more time. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, that He richly poured out on on us with all wisdom and understanding. I mean, catch that. They're like, it's not just forgiveness. He gives you wisdom and he gives you understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Not a mystery like the Gnostics would have thought of it concealed, but, but you know, you have to have like this special knowledge. But no, it's been given. It's been revealed. This thing that was hidden, that people longed for, that was promised and was awaited is Christ. Not something else. Christ is the mystery of God revealed. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time 
Then listen to this, these final words. To bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Now focus on verse 10 with me for just a moment. To bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Now consider that in light of what Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is good news for divided times. When nations experience division within their nation, divisions that can often creep into and poison churches, the authority of Christ speaks a message of true togetherness, of true unity. In every nation, politics divide. But in every nation, Christ unites. In every nation, racism divides. But in every nation, Christ unites. In every nation, COVID-19 restrictions divide. But in every nation, Christ unites. For too long, we have believed that saying Christ unites is cheap when we're facing real divisions, such as racism. But I say that these divisions are cheap And the true togetherness of Christ is our treasure. How pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We magnify the divisions and we dilute the greatness of Jesus Christ. We we don't want cheap answers, but the substance of Christ is not cheap. We, we, we We don't want cheap answers, but his blood was not cheap. We, we, we don't want cheap answers, but his grace was not cheap. What is cheap is ushering into the church a shallow unity. The shallow unity of this world. A unity so fragile that one slight misstep, one carelessly worded tweet, one failure to post or share a post, one moment of thinking about a situation maybe from a different angle can cause you simply not only to slip off the cliff, but to be thrown off the cliff by the very community that just moments ago you were part of. FBNO, we have allowed that sort of cheap unity to replace the robust unity of Christ. So may we return to the riches of Christ, the substance of Christ, the the treasure of Jesus Christ that is to be applied in real life situations. May May we turn from treating him as a cheap answer and give our lives showing that he's the real answer. You see, we must hold the two passages in tension. Ephesians 1.10 and Matthew 28.18-20. Because it is the Father's plan to bring everything together. All races, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. All socioeconomic divisions, all educational attainments, everything. Together in Christ. Both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. And it is the command of Christ as His disciples to make disciples of all nations. Let those two realities be seen as means and end. The end of bringing everything together in Christ is accomplished through the means of making disciples of all nations. You see, when we lose and we have this missional drift, and we forget that the mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations, when we have missional drift and we turn and we say, well, the mission of the church is unity, 
And we go off chasing unity rather than going off and chasing making disciples of all nations. We cash in the Great Commission for something else and we get frustrated on the way to unity but not realizing we've made an idol out of it. We've changed the mission. You see, unity is almost like a byproduct of being on mission together. You see, I look and I see you as a church involved in Care Effect Ministries. And I see the community that prior to COVID-19 that you had with one another. It was a community that was reaching across lines. One of our ministries is called Inward. It was a ministry to women in the adult entertainment industry down on Bourbon Street. And what was so powerful about that, and what you need to know about my own history with that, is my wife, while I was a pastor of another church in New Orleans, Edgewater Baptist Church, was involved every Wednesday night in that ministry of going and demonstrating the love of Christ in some of the hardest places, of being on mission with you and making disciples of all nations. And it was bringing together the body of Christ because it wasn't just Edgewater and FBNO. There were other churches from our city that were coming together. And what we were witnessing in that and what we need to rekindle today in the church is that when we are on mission together, it unites us across all of the dividing lines. It brings us together and it orients us And it brings about the end of bringing all things together under Christ, thus fulfilling God's word. It's important for us to see how important it is that we hold all of the scriptures in tension with one another, even as we consider the magnitude of these words today, of the purpose of the Father in having chosen us and of having predestined us. FBNO, it was to be on mission for Christ in New Orleans, in all nations, and not alone, in isolation from our brothers and sisters in this city, but together. And that, that will bring unity, a robust, real unity, as we do mission and life together in this city, in all nations. But finally, what we see in verses 11 through 14 is this. In Christ, he sealed us with his spirit. Now, these words... In him we've also received an inheritance. Immediately put us at a disadvantage. Because embracing this truth about inheritance works against us today. And here's how it kind of unfolds sometimes for us today. Today the more people named in a will after someone has passed to receive an inheritance, the smaller each pie piece becomes. Let's just say that I have a million dollars to leave to my children when I die. Then commonly speaking, each of my four children would receive $250,000 because that adds up to one million. But let's say I've got grandchildren by the time that I die and, and and I want to include them in my will. Well, then that starts to cut into what my children receive. And then on top of that, one of my children might have five kids while another only has one which could cause that child and grandchild to perhaps think that they should not be penalized for not having had more children and should receive an amount equal to that of the other four children and their grandchildren. To complicate things even more in life, I might have helped one of my children more than I helped another with a purchase, a big event, a private college, and so on, leading the other children to feel that the amount for that child should be less because they got more during this life. And you see the complexity, all of a sudden, of inheritance. We should not be surprised then that when we show up to a passage like this, we don't jump for joy over the word inheritance. You may have even been part of an inheritance dispute. But such is also a major barrier to our humility. 
Just as in the illustration I provided with my children about them arguing about who should get what, they had forgotten one central truth. The money was mine to purpose and distribute however I deemed good. So is salvation the Lord's. And ours should be the prayer of Psalm 51.12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his. And when he saves, that should always result in praise, glory, and honor to his name in the life of every saved person. But our current understanding of inheritance is also an advantage because we understand well the significance of what it means to be an only child with no other living relatives. The entire inheritance would go to that one person. And for us, that one person is Christ. You see, we only participate in the Holy Spirit if we are in Christ. And we only receive the Holy Spirit if we are in Christ. And so for us to be inheritance recipients, for us to understand the the significance of being sealed with the Holy Spirit, to, to know him as a down payment of our inheritance until the redemption until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory, if we are to know that, then we must come to Christ. Indeed, we must, if we already be in Christ, return to Christ. You see, if we're going to be a scripture-fed, servant-led, spirit-filled, Christ-centered, Father-glorifying church that's thriving in this city, then we have got to drive deep the truths of God's word, and that is this. That it is all to the glory of God the Father. That's what Paul's pointing to in this passage. In fact, he even goes on in verse 15. This is why since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I never stop giving thanks for you when I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to that mighty work, working of his strength. Are you here today? And maybe you've been in Christ, but there has not been much praise rising up over the fact that God, in his grace, saved you to bring you into relationship. And I encourage you, let the metaphor of adoption wash over you today. That God, in his grace, is kneeling down in his word to you today and bringing you in and looking you deeply in your eyes and saying to you, I love you. And I don't love you because of what you bring to me. I love you because I am love. And in my grace, I have given you salvation. So praise me. It's a gift. If you be here today and you've never tasted of the gift of God's salvation, then this is is what God has done. God in his grace sent Jesus to come to you who knelt down to you to bring you in to the Father. He got down on his knees. He washed your feet. The text says he came down in order to die on a cross for you and for me. 
That's the love of the Father. You see, we've, we've often almost made it like the Father didn't love us, but Jesus did. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. It was the Father's love for you to send the Son revealing the love of the Father. Jesus said that repeatedly in the Gospel of John. And so my question is to you today, do you see the eyes of the Father through the message of Christ today? Do you hear him speaking this word of love to you in this moment? And there's only one response, is to receive his grace. There's only one response, is to give your life to him. There's only one response is to give your life to live in holiness for him. He'll cleanse you and make you holy and pure and give you that life of liberation that you've been looking for. That the world promised but never delivered, Jesus gives you. So I'm going to ask for everyone to stand in this moment and wherever you are with Christ. Maybe it's in this moment coming to Christ. Maybe it's in this moment remembering that in Christ you are loved by the Father. I want to encourage you to worship. But if that's you today and you've never received Christ, you've never known the love of the Father, then in this moment as I pray, I want you to come forward and I want to pray over you. And I want to meet you and to begin a relationship with you in knowing the Father. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that in this moment that your word will not return to you void, but it will go out into your people And bring about that obedience and that holiness that you desire. That it will result in praise, glory, and honor being given to your name. That we will rightly understand misunderstood words. And that the point of this passage of resulting in praise, glory, and honor to you will result in unity in the body around your word. But Lord, in this moment, I pray for the one. Pray for the one right now. That your word says that like a shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go and find the one. There's one here today that, that needs to know that you love them. And they needed to hear this message of your love. And so I pray that today would be the day they give their heart to you. They give their life to you. If that's you, would you just come down in this moment? We want to celebrate with you. Everyone in this room is praying for you right now.